to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In the spring of 1864, U.S. Grant and the Army of the Potomac battled Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia in the Overland Campaign from the Wilderness to Cold Harbor. Many historians regard the campaign as ending there to be followed by Grant's next strategic plan, the Petersburg Campaign. But author Gordon C. Ray begs to differ. He sees Grant's outflanking move toward Petersburg as an extension of the Overland Campaign, not a departure from it. So he's added a volume to his previous four on the Overland Campaign. We'll talk about On to Petersburg, Grant and Lee, June 4th to 15th, 1864, with author Gordon C. Ray, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a moderately cool November evening in 2017 from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of ECU, East Carolina University, now striving to be known as ECU, branding itself the way KFC doesn't call itself Kentucky Fried Chicken anymore. Our new chancellor wants us to be ECU. We'll see about that. Uh, I'm not speaking for ECU or KFC or anybody else, just myself. My guest likewise will do the same, as we always do, on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, I'm here getting ready for the show a couple hours ago and had an incident occur, something uh, that that I'm still processing. I went out to get a coffee and donut uh, to tide myself through the late afternoon. Won't have dinner till after eight after the show tonight. Went through a drive-through at a local place and when I got up to pay the uh, pert young a uh, salesperson said, are you over 55? And I 
the gray hair, the balding pate, the beard, uh, white beard, of course. I look that old. I am, in fact, 59. I did some quick math and said, yes, I am. And I was given a senior discount. This is the first time this has happened to me. Uh, it's, it, it's not bad. I get the dollar back. I like that. But it's, it's a, like a, a life transition. First, I'm not playing soccer this past fall. Now I'm getting a senior discount. Uh, I may have to buy a red sports car or something. I may have to turn turn things around in some way. We'll, we'll see how, to, how I handle that. Uh, back here on campus uh, last week, uh, ECU played football again. You don't want to hear about it. Uh, to give, to, to, to put it in a, a, a microcosm, a, a single example, Every ECU has two quarterbacks this year. Uh, one of them plays most of the time. The other one, who's a good runner, comes in once in a while. But when they put him in, it always tells the other team, quarterback draw. Quarterback's going to keep the ball. This is the running quarterback. Seen it happen four or five times. Every time the play gets stuffed because the other team knows what's happening. Same thing happened this weekend. They bring in the running guy in, and I'm yelling at the screen, oh, they know it's coming. They know it's coming. Well, our coach isn't that dumb quarterback takes the ball, fakes toward the line, stops, and throws a pass. The whole team has gone for the draw. They're all running in the middle. There's no one near the receiver. Ten yards downfield in the end zone, actually. Wide open. Uh, and and the quarterback throws the ball behind him. Incomplete. So all year they plan this This, this one time they'll, they'll break from pattern and, and get the winning touchdown. And when they do it, they can't execute a ten-yard pitch and catch. Uh, it, it's that kind of season. But uh, my team, uh, University of Michigan, won again, and Michigan State played Ohio State this past week. And, uh, and as a Michigan man, when I watch that, I think of Abraham Lincoln's story about the old lady watching uh, her husband fight with a bear, and she's on the sideline cheering, go it, husband, go it, bear. Um, that's my, my response on those two teams, go at it. Uh, well, here on campus, it has been extremely busy, lots going on. Uh, last night, we did a forum for students and faculty to talk about monuments and public memory, not just Civil War monuments in, in the United States, but we had presentations on uh, monuments in Germany, uh, dealing with uh, their World War II history, uh, monuments in Korea, dealing with the, the comfort women uh, and the Japanese actions in World War II, uh, monuments in Ireland, monuments in Africa dealing with uh, Cecil Rhodes and his legacy. Really an interesting presentation. And uh, then today, while discussing the same topic uh, uh, with a graduate class, one of the students recently reviewed for an assignment Gaines Foster's book, Ghosts of the Confederacy, which highly, highly recommended. I hadn't looked at it in a while. I read it when it came out in the 80s. And the student uh, reminded us, talking about his review, that the monuments put up all over the South in the early 20th century were inspired largely, uh, we, we now argue today, by uh, the, the coincidental movements of, of disfranchisement, lynching, Jim Crow. The, these monuments were in part intended to solidify political authority of the, of the white power structure. But as Foster's book reminds us, they were also uh, commercially motivated. There were companies that made these monuments 
and they produced all kinds of uh, advertising literature pressuring small towns throughout the South, don't be unpatriotic. Every other town has a monument. Why don't you have one? And for X dollars down and X a month, we can build you a pedestal and put a cast, you know, prefab, uh, mass-produced iron rebel on top of it, and you can be just as good as the people in the next county. So uh, it's a reminder that, that besides the great reasons for things are also the mundane reasons for things. That, and uh, uh, Foster's book is, is definitely a good one for uh, bringing that back out. So lots going on. Uh, there are times we think wouldn't want to be anywhere else than on uh, this or any other campus where people are discussing ideas in this fashion. We're discussing ideas here at Civil War Talk Radio, and we'll continue to do so. We won't do so next week. It's Thanksgiving week, American Thanksgiving. No show on the 22nd of November, but we'll be back on the 29th. Uh, Anthony Wosky will be here to discuss Philadelphia and the Civil War and many other topics. On December 6th, Sam Elliott uh, has a book about John C. Brown of Tennessee, Rebel, Redeemer, and Railroader. And then we'll take the semester break, come back in January with Terry Alford in his biography of John Wilkes Booth, Chuck Calhoun, his book on the presidency of U.S. Grant, uh, Mike Hill uh, will talk about the North Carolina Atlas of the Civil War that he was a major contributor to. Lots of good things and many more good things in the rest of January and February. Check them all out on impedimentsofwar.org the website, or go to the Impediments of War Facebook page, see what's happening. At the website, you can buy the books we talk about, click on the link, takes you to Amazon, and you get them there. Mark Gaffney is responsible for making that all up to date and does an outstanding job. You can also donate to Civil War Talk Radio, and we're getting near the end of 2017. The rest of this calendar year, anything you send here will not actually be spent on books or even donuts and coffee with the senior discount. They will be spent, they will be sent wholesale to CAMP, the Citizens Advocating Memorial Preservation. Uh, the people who bought the Cattaraugus uh, County Memorial and Historical Building before the legislature or the county uh, executives there could tear it down, they've saved it. And they need some short-term cash infusion until they can get big grants and refurbish it. So Civil War Talk Radio is contributing to that using your dollars. Yours are not tax-deductible uh, when you send them here. Mine will be. That's that's what I get out of it. Uh, so contribute, and uh, we'll all feel good about that. Many other things going on. Check out the website. Check out the Facebook page to find out. Tonight we're talking about the climax uh, of the Overland campaign, if one thinks of it that way. The new book, uh, number five in a series of books on that campaign by Gordon C. Ray. This one is called On Petersburg, Grant and Lee, June 4 to 15, 1864. Uh, Gordon joined us, I think it was 2009 maybe for previous book or the one before that. It's good to have him back on the show. Uh, Gordon, are you there? I'm here. Jerry, how are you doing today? Good. Welcome back to the show. Good to hear from you. 
Well, thank so, you. And, and by the way, let me uh, let me set you at ease. Uh, okay. There's nothing wrong with getting senior discounts. I've been getting them now for quite some time, being 72 years old. Well, there you <laughs> and after well, a while, you start to look at them as a, as a, as a, a real plus rather than a minus. So, well, that, yeah, that's, that's encouraging. To that, that gives me something to look forward to. I appreciate that a lot. Now, um, the first question I have to ask, uh, we were corresponding setting this up, and you uh, sent me a message pointing out that you – do a lot of work as a lawyer uh, on the Virgin Islands, and th- it's been a, a bad hurricane season there. Uh, is, is your stuff okay? Are you okay? Uh, what's yeah, going uh, on? I, I'm fine. My stuff's okay. I've been working out of the islands really for the last 35-odd years, uh, since the very early 1980s. Um, I was an assistant U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C. for many years and then went down to the islands as a federal prosecutor and liked it so much to set up my own law firm down there. And... Uh, I now work pretty much across the country in federal courts, but I do a lot of business in the islands. Uh, and unfortunately, St. Croix, St. Thomas were badly hit by, uh, uh, well, by both the last hurricanes, Irma and Maria. But uh, we're, still, we're still in business. Courts are closed down, but they should be opening up soon. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, glad, glad things are not worse than they are. And, uh, you know, hope everything comes together for for the, you and the people you work with uh, as soon as well, possible. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the questions I asked you, uh, looking at my notes from the last time we talked, was uh, was the question why you wrote on the campaign, the Overland campaign, the wilderness, Spotsylvania, Cold Harbor, these battles uh, to a lot of Civil War readers, I, I think, seem uh, depressing there's not as much maneuver. There's certainly no innocence left. The fervor is gone. The troops themselves become disheartened. Uh, and we talked about that last time. And since then, I've noticed it seems a lot is being written on this phase of the war, that it seems to be drawing more attention rather than less. Uh, certainly your books are, are, are a major part of that. Why, why is this phase of the war, do you think, gaining attention in the last few years? Well, I think I think historians have come to see this as a you know a, a major turning point in the war. Uh, I remember when I first got into reading Civil War literature, uh, it seemed like there were thousands of books that covered you know Gettysburg and Manassas and Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville and all the battles of sixty one, sixty two, and sixty three. Mm-hmm. And after Gettysburg, it was sort of like, well, something happened, and then there was Appomattox, and we surrendered, and that whole void. Uh, of what happened after Gettysburg and before the surrender at Appomattox was pretty much untouched. I got fascinated with the Overland campaign, the campaign that started in May of 1864 between Grant and Lee, because this was really the, the well, several different layers. One layer, this was the contest between the two best generals on either side, Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee, and this is the first time they had a chance to basically match wits, uh, and it's a fascinating story. Uh, secondly, it was a pivotal point in the war because even though there had been the big Union victories of 1863, the election of 1864 was coming up. Uh, Lincoln was not at all sure he was going to win the national election or even his party's nomination. Uh, there were, of course, the, the draft riots going on, the uh, tremendous disaffection. Uh, and he realized that it was critical to uh, have victories, and particularly have victories in Virginia, uh, which is uh, you know where Robert E. Lee's army had been winning spectacular victories over the last several years. 
uh, all eyes were focused there. So this was not only going to be a military uh, turning point, but also a political one. So we have the, the these heavyweight leaders. We have this uh, you know critical moment uh, for, for for the Union war effort in terms of politics. Uh, but the fighting itself, again, and and I I, I share the way you expressed it that it, it seems like once this campaign begins, the the books used to just sort of turn off and just well, there's one one battle after another. They just keep charging into each other, and then Lee runs out of men, and and you have Appomattox. Uh, clearly, it, it it's more uh, a lot more to it than that. Um, the the impression I, I get from this book is that if you uh, is, is that you see command friction on the Union side as one of the most important as well as interesting aspects of this. Is that a fair evaluation? Definitely, I think command friction on the Union side was critical, and command attrition on the Confederate side was equally critical. Uh, Lee uh, on the on the Union side, of course, Grant had been brought in in March of 1864 by, by Lincoln uh, to win battles, uh, to bring unity into the war effort. And uh, Grant, of course, had been uncertain who should head the Army of the Potomac. George Gordon Meade was the commander of that army, the victor of Gettysburg. But at this point, he'd lost, lost favor with the, uh, uh, with the political side of Washington, uh, mainly because he hadn't achieved anything since Gettysburg, since July of 1863. And... Um, Grant was inclined to replace him, but then met him uh, and decided to keep him on. It was sort of the problem of if he didn't keep Meade on, he'd have to invent a Meade. He needed somebody who knew the Army of the Potomac, who knew the the other generals there and who had their respect. And so he worked out sort of an agreement with Meade, uh, that agreement being that Meade would handle the details of running the Army and fighting the battles. And Grant would uh, sort of oversee the process in a general sort of way and oversee, the, of course, the entire Union war effort across the country. And that, that's a difficult arrangement to, to make, and it took uh, some extraordinary efforts on both of their parts to, to make it work as well as it did. We're going to take a yeah. short break right now. We'll come back and talk more about the armies of Northern Virginia and the Potomac in uh, the Overland Campaign and uh, its conclusion on to Petersburg. Our guest tonight, Gordon C. Ray. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Gordon C. Ray, author of On to Petersburg, Grant and Lee, June 4 through 15, 1864. It is the culmination of what is now a five-volume set on the Overland Campaign, which was what we began talking about in our first segment, the uh, command arrangement of Grant and Meade. Uh, Gordon, you mentioned Lee suffered a lot of uh, leadership attrition. Who's in charge of the Army of Northern Virginia at, at the time of, uh, of, of this book, uh, by the time we get to June 64? Sure. Well, by June of 64, Lee is still running the Army of Northern Virginia, but his the uh, uh, his top leadership was pretty much decimated. The Army of Northern Virginia starts off the campaign with three Army Corps. Uh, those are uh, units that contain, oh, somewhere around 15,000 soldiers, 20,000 apiece, depending on what month you look at them. Uh, James Longstreet, of course, ran his first corps, uh, his best and most experienced uh, general. Longstreet was wounded in the Battle of the Wilderness at the outset of the campaign and is out for many months. Uh, general A.P. Hill uh, suffers uh, throughout this campaign. Uh, he remains with Lee, uh, but he's in very bad physical shape. Uh, the second corps commander, uh, Richard Stoddard Ewell, uh, is finally relieved by Lee, uh, not only because of uh, command problems, but also because of his health. And, of course, Lee's cavalry commander, Jeb Stewart, uh, who's running Lee's cavalry, uh, is killed, uh, dies on the 13th of May in the middle of the campaign. So Lee basically, by June, only has one man left from the group that he'd started off with, and that, of course, is going to be A.P. Hill, who's not in very good shape. Uh, so so the command structure changes as the campaign evolves. Now, the strategic situation facing the commanders, uh, Lee doesn't have his, his best people anymore, but he's got his army in a, a, a well-developed position to the, the east of Richmond, between it, uh, between Richmond and, and Grant's army. You know, he's well dug in, and, and Grant is facing him. So uh, what are Grant's options at that point in the campaign as, as we, we get to the part where your book begins? Sure. Well, by June of 1864, uh, Grant had uh, basically maneuvered Lee back toward Richmond. Uh, Grant's goal was to destroy Lee's army or at least totally immobilize it, uh, nullify it uh, in, the, in the American Civil War. 
And Lee uh, had written back to Richmond that his main goal was to keep Grant from doing that, to prevent Grant from driving him back into the uh, defenses around Richmond. Um, by June of 1864, uh, the armies were lined up in front of uh, uh, Cold Harbor, uh, which is about oh, seven, air, seven or eight airline miles from downtown Richmond, um, facing each other off. Lee's forces, of course, behind extraordinarily strong earthworks. Uh, Lee's flanks were on two different streams, the Potapotamoy Creek to the north and the Chickahominy River to the south, uh, and Grant was stuck there. A uh, bad place to be because the summers in that area are, were, of course, infested with uh, mosquitoes. Malaria was a big problem. Uh, McClellan had uh, become very aware of that two years before. Uh, and uh, so Grant realized that he had to do something. Uh, launching more attacks was not going to make any sense because he'd already been rebuffed at the Battle of Cold Harbor on June 3rd. Uh, he tested the Confederate Earthworks, and so he had to come up with a brand-new plan. And that's the nugget of what my book on the Petersburg is all about. Well, uh, listeners, this is a good time if you're if you're not listening live and, and just downloaded this. A good time to hit the pause button, go to your Civil War atlas, or better still, go to a copy of this book uh, onto Petersburg and look at the maps in there. The maps in this book are, are by George Skoke, uh, master Civil War cartographer, and. Uh, Gordon, I have to say, these are really outstanding maps. They they, they help tell the story very clearly. They're the, superb. George has done the books for all, the maps for all of my books. We're, mm-hmm. We always work very closely together. I do the first uh, drawing, but my map-making abilities are somewhere between 0 and 0.1%. Um, mm-hmm. But I lay out sort of where I want things, and then George, I send him the old maps, the Mitzler maps and the Gilmer maps, and he puts the whole thing together and has a talent for making maps tell a story, which is what I like. They're simple, they're clear, and you see exactly what's going on. It, it's it's a pet peeve when you get a map, uh, or you get an author describing, uh, you know, here's Horse Cave, here's uh, Hawes Shop, here's some little obscure point on the map, and it's not on the map, because the map maker wasn't in sync with the with the author, and that doesn't happen mm-hmm. here. When you, you mention something in the text, I can find it on the map, and that's... Uh, very helpful. So, while Grant is is looking at Richmond, uh, to the south of Richmond is is Petersburg, mm-hmm. you know, major city in itself, uh, lifeline for Richmond. What uh, talk about Grant's ideas toward getting his army, uh, or a piece of his army, or or the army of the James for that matter, into uh, Petersburg. Well, his, his big picture thinking is this. He's been, again, fought to an impasse by Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't see much of a much gain in straight-up attacks. Uh, again, he needs, to, uh, he needs to do something. Uh, and so he decides he will change the nature of his campaign somewhat. He will now try to cut off the supply line, lines to Richmond and to Lee's army. Because if Lee's army isn't getting a steady supply of ammunition and food, it's going to have to leave. It's going to have to pull out from that strong defensive position. And when it does, Grant can then go after him. So Grant decides he's going to take his cavalry, uh, which is commanded by Phil Sheridan, uh, and send that cavalry to the north and then swing around and try to cut the Virginia Central Railway, which is bringing supplies to Richmond from the Shenandoah Valley. And then he's going to take some force and send it southward, across the James River 
and have it punch into Petersburg. Petersburg's about 20 miles south of Richmond. It's a major rail hub. Rail lines are coming in there from several parts, from North Carolina, again, from the Shenandoah Valley area. Uh, and if, if Grant can cut that supply line as well, we will have no option but to leave the Cold Harbor area, leave Richmond, probably retreat west, and then Grant can follow and hopefully have a battle outside of those entrenchments uh, and win the victory that he's been, been planning on winning. And as well, he could take Richmond, which is a huge uh, political score. So so Grant has his options laid out. He needs to get, he thinks Petersburg is the key if he can get there. And, and uh, Lee seems to know this as well. If, if Grant gets down to Petersburg, it, it's just going to be a siege at that point. But there's already a Union army poised to take uh, Petersburg, the Army of the James uh, is not part of the Army of the Potomac, but it's under Grant's command because he commands all the Union armies. So uh, tell us tell us about the, the Army of the James. Who are they and what are they doing there? Well, the Army of the James is an interesting story as well. At the beginning of this whole campaign, back in May of 1864, Lee's plan had been, I'm sorry, Grant's plan mm-hmm. had been to sort of triangulate Lee's army, have the Army of the Potomac under General Meade attack Lee pretty much head on, have another army uh, under Frank Siegel move south along the Shenandoah Valley uh, off of Lee's flank, cutting off all of those routes of escape and also the, the Confederacy's breadbasket, and then have another army, the Army of the James under General Butler, move up the James River and uh, hopefully take uh, Richmond, get into Lee's rear, and then Lee would be defeated. That was the overall big plan that Grant had at the outset of the campaign. Uh, Butler, of course, was a political general. He's from Massachusetts, uh, a very good lawyer, but uh, sometimes lawyers don't make very good generals, uh, and Butler pretty much proves that. Uh, In this campaign, uh, he moves his force, the Army of the James, uh, in early May up the James River. They get stymied, ultimately get beaten in mid-May by a force under General Beauregard and settle down in in a uh, piece of land between the James and Appomattox River. Uh, Grant later charitably said it was like Butler was in a bottle tightly corked. It wasn't quite that bad, but uh, he was stuck there. Uh, That was an army uh, that had the ability, were properly commanded, uh, to punch through to Petersburg. And so Grant's plan for taking Petersburg uh, evolved, had several different uh, iterations, uh, but all of them involved all or part of Butler's army cooperating with portions of the Army of the Potomac to take Petersburg. So this is where Grant's thinking is by uh, the, the the first full week in June, by uh, uh, by June 7th, certainly. June 7th is, is a, a day worth discussing. Lee and Grant are still facing each other in the fortifications they've each built at Cold Harbor. Grant is working mm-hmm. you know, mentally on this plan to, to get his army to disengage and go south. But in the meantime, as you pointed out, there was a big battle there on June 3rd, and a lot of casualties, a lot of wounded men, a lot of dead bodies lying between the lines. And because both sides are so close together, there's so much uh, gunfire across the open land, no one can go out and rescue these men. The uh, eventually they do reach a, a truce long enough to rescue who's still alive four days later. That's a very controversial moment in in Civil War history. Could you talk about that truce? 
Well, it is, yeah. Um, after this massive assault on June 3rd, uh, the uh, thousands of wounded men uh, were lying between the lines, the Confederate Union lines. Um, during For the next day or so, soldiers at night would crawl out and try to pull wounded men back. Uh, most of these soldiers were injured Union soldiers because obviously the Union forces have been the ones making the charge. And somewhere around the 5th of June, a couple of days later, uh, General Hancock reports to, uh, to General Meade that there's been uh, uh, what's going on on his front, and Meade goes to Grant. And, they, and Grant then begins a series of uh, exchanges with Lee to work out some kind of a truce. Um, and uh, I spend a, a chapter in my book taking a look at exactly how that, uh, how that truce unfolded because it took them a couple of days to finally come up with a truce that, that stuck. Uh, the short story is, is that uh, there was misunderstanding between the two generals. Uh, it took a long time to get messages back and forth across the lines. Uh, and there were a lot of mistakes made, uh, a lot of mistakes. Uh, and so, so by the time the uh, uh, truce was reached on the 7th of June uh, and soldiers went out to retrieve their comrades, uh, they were virtually, virtually nobody was, was left alive. Uh, after the war, predominantly, uh, Southern historians, uh, partisans of Lee, um, blamed the uh, length of time that it took for this truce to be put into effect on Grant, uh, claiming that Grant uh, just didn't want to have, didn't want to admit uh, that he'd been defeated and viewed a army-wide truce as an admission of, of defeat. And of course, Grant's defenders uh, said this was all Lee's fault, that he was standing on ceremony and didn't care about all these people dying. So it, it became a really big partisan issue. Uh, my bottom line is is that there were slip-ups by both men. Um, I don't think either one of them were badly intentioned, uh, but I think that given the nature of uh, how long it took to get messages across the lines and some genuine misunderstandings, this whole thing came to pass. So there's basically uh, blame uh, can be cast pretty much equally on each side. Well, it's a very interesting uh, moment in, in Civil War history, and your, your chapter about it really is... Uh, intriguing and worth reading when you talk about how other writers have handled this you uh, discuss some of the contemporaries people like uh, uh, Livermore and Ropes uh, Union veterans who are also historians and then you uh, you reference more recent uh, people 20th century writers uh, and you have a reference to Shelby Foote's historical novel The Civil War A Narrative and I read mm-hmm. that and said meow uh, historical <laughs> novel he's, he's not he's <laughs> now you know Foote was of course a novelist not a historian uh, many people have read his, his book uh, books and they're, they're you know delightfully written but yeah. uh, that, that seems a little bit uh, uh Direct. Uh, tell, tell me what. Tell us what you really think of of, of Foote's work. Okay. Well, I, I've read all of his his, his three volumes, and uh, mm-hmm. I thought they were great. I loved them. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought he did a fantastic job at painting a picture of the various uh, individuals involved. Uh, he, he definitely has a, a a point of view, but that's fair enough. Authors are entitled to do that. Um, but what I found in a lot of different areas. Uh, and maybe it would make an interesting article sometime, um, he would put words into people's mouths or, or use examples to make points uh, that were more literary than historically accurate. Uh, I know after, for instance, the Battle of Cold Harbor, 
uh, well, I'm sorry, before the Battle of Cold Harbor, that terrible assault on June 3rd, uh, he talks he talks about how the uh, soldiers uh, on the Union side were, uh, you know, knew that to make a charge like this would be certain death. Uh, and then he says one of them, you know, put in his diary uh, that before the charge was made, something along the lines of, I'm dead, or words to that effect. Um, no historian has ever been able to find that. I've, that diary. I've talked to everybody, and I've never seen anything like it either. Um, and I suspect it was just another literary device that he used. It was a literary, literary device that made a point. Uh, and uh, so I'm not faulting him for that, but uh, I don't think he can be taken as the a someone who is true to sources in the same way that modern historians are expected to be. I think that's a pretty fair evaluation, uh, and it is... Uh, it's one of the the lines we draw where where you you get people who are very faithful to the sources but aren't necessarily very good writers, and then you get people who are extraordinarily good writers and uh, may or may not follow. Uh, I will say, and I I said this last time you were on, so listeners will not be surprised. No, I think this this book is really well written. Uh, it's it it flows day by day uh, without falling into the the trap that. Uh, I, I, there are other multi-volume works, uh, some on the Battle of Gettysburg, for example, that examine the fighting day by day, hour by hour, and mm-hmm. uh, it's easy to get lost in the weeds and, and, and the yeah. minutia and detail, and here, I'd, uh, this doesn't do that. For me, it, it, this works. Uh, your your book is, is a pleasure to read. You talk about these the... Uh, both the soldiers uh, and their individual experiences, also the leaders. And I want to get back to uh, Grant and his, his grand plan, but also Lee's response. Uh, mm-hmm. You said Grant's pushing him on three fronts, through the Shenandoah Valley, through the Army of the James, also head on with the Army of the Potomac. Lee eventually feels he has to, to deal with all of these by uh, June 7th, June 8th of, of 64. How can he how, how does he split up his army? How can he afford to do it? And, and well, I should probably—I should probably save that till after our break, because I'm getting the, the high sign here that we need to take another break. So let's cogitate on that for a moment. Uh, what is Lee going to do uh, in response to Grant's move? And we'll take another short break here. Uh, come right back and talk more with our guest, Gordon C. Ray, author of *On to Petersburg: Grant and Lee, June 4 to 15, 1864. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Gordon Ray about his new book, On to Petersburg, Grant and Lee, June 4 through 15, 1864, uh, Question uh, asked at the end of, of our last segment, as Grant is planning to disengage at Cold Harbor and take his army around Lee's flank, try to get into Petersburg to the south, Lee uh, is not idle. What What is Lee doing uh, at this time? Well, Lee is finding himself in a tougher and tougher position. Uh, he's now entrenched uh, in the entrenchments of Petersburg. Uh, his command structure is in shambles. Uh, and, of course, his army has been diminished. It's been reinforced by some new troops, uh, but uh, obviously the combat-hardened veterans uh, have, uh, at least that sector of the army, has taken massive, massive hits. Um, Butler's down south of Richmond, uh, not far from Petersburg, uh, with the Army of the James, uh, and, of course, Petersburg is threatened. And at the same time, uh, the Union efforts in the Shenandoah Valley pick up again under General Hunter, who starts to move down toward Lexington, and then looks like he's going to head toward Lynchburg. Uh, If he takes Lynchburg, he can cut off the supplies coming in from the valley. And so what Lee has to do, uh, basically, decides he has to reinforce Hunter. Uh, He has to send troops up to the valley, so he breaks off General Breckinridge's division and finally uh, his entire Second Army Corps, which is... uh, uh, commanded by Jubal Early, and sends him up off to the Shenandoah Valley uh, to support Hunter. And his reasoning is is that even though he's now weakening himself in front of Grant, he has no choice, because if he doesn't, then uh, basically the federal forces behind him in the valley will uh, will take over, win, and then sweep into his rear. So, so Lee is finding himself terribly crunched uh, and uh, uh, faced with some impossible choices. The the pressure is not letting up on any of those fronts. We mentioned earlier Butler uh, commanding the army of the James. He does make an actual uh, sort of un uh, you know, spontaneous effort to get into Petersburg on June 9th, Sends his yeah. troops uh, in, in in different directions to try to get into Petersburg, and they are are stopped there. To, how close did they get to actually capturing the city? Not very close. Uh, Butler sends out a foray uh, with some cavalry and some uh, some infantry uh, on the 9th of June. Uh, his plan is, is that they'll be able to sweep into the town and hopefully cut the rail line and the bridge across the Appomattox River, and that would then sever the supplies to, uh, to Lee's army. 
Um, the uh, the move doesn't go very well. Uh, there's there's poor communication. Troops don't move as fast as they should, and the Confederates have a line of intre- of earthworks protecting Richmond. It's called the Dimmick Line, named after the gentleman who had, uh, the engineer who had, had put it up. Uh, it's quite strong, and so there's just some feeble attacks that are made, and then the force retreats. What that does is, though, it puts obviously General Beauregard, uh, who's in charge of that uh, that portion of the Confederate forces, uh, on alert uh, that uh, Petersburg might well be a focus of the Union war effort, uh, and uh, he sends some more troops down there to help defend it. So that's going to cause problems when Grant makes his big push towards Petersburg. The uh, in in local lore, I know the Petersburg. I've seen signs there. They they refer to that. Uh, that victory over the Butler's forces as, as the battle of the uh, old men and young boys, the right. sort of let, right. which which sounds like a political scandal, but it's actually a, uh, a nickname for a civil war battle. Uh, mm-hmm. The the uh, so that doesn't help Grant. Uh, I was fascinated reading your book to learn how late in the game Grant figures out how he's actually going to execute this move that he, he figures out by June 7th, if not earlier, he's, he's going to disengage and move south, but he doesn't know how he's going to cross the James river. And that is a big river. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, 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 how it, he almost improvises on the fly, how to get tens of mm-hmm. thousands of men across this major river. I, I, I found that fascinating. It, it, it is fascinating, and it says a whole lot about Grant, and it's one of the things that I find fascinating about him. Um, Grant was in many ways an improviser. Uh, he would sort of uh, take a look at the situation, come up with some generalized plans, uh, but he wasn't, he wasn't afraid to improvise, wasn't afraid to you know, change what he was going to do. And so somewhere around the, oh, at least by the, the 5th, 4th, 5th of, of um, June, he'd come up with the idea of cutting off Lee's supply lines. Obviously, it was clear that Petersburg was going to have to be a place to be hit. Uh, he wasn't sure exactly how he was going to do it. Uh, the, uh, there were huge risks in disengaging from Lee's army up there at, at uh, Cold Harbor, because if he did that, Lee, and Lee discovered it, Lee could pursue uh, which mm-hmm. caused some real problems. Uh, Lee might attack General Butler from behind. Uh, I mean, who could tell what was going to happen? So Grant had to start to figure out how to put together all these pieces. At the same time, he realized he had to move pretty soon. So he didn't really finalize his plans until uh, June 11th or June 12th, basically the day before he starts the Army in motion. Uh, it's a fascinating story, and it says a lot about Grant. It's a plus uh, because... He was able to respond to exactly what was happening at the moment, and it turned out to have been a brilliant idea. Uh, the minus side of it was was that he didn't communicate the overall plan to his to the men who were supposed to execute it. And so, General Butler, um, Baldy Smith, of course, who's one of who's one of Butler's uh, commanders, who ends up uh, with the job of taking Petersburg, uh, and the Army of the Potomac leader, uh, General Meade really don't understand what they're supposed to be doing and that they're supposed to be coordinating. And uh, that failure of Grant to make clear to his subordinates what they're supposed to do, I think, was in large part due to his uh, spontaneous style of generalship. Now, the... Both a, the, the uh, go ahead. I was going to say that's both a plus and a minus. A good idea put together on the spot, uh, some brilliant uh, steps taken, um, but 
failing to make sure that everybody understood exactly what was going on. One of the most spectacular parts of the campaign is the actual crossing of the James. When uh, I recall writing about the Army of the Ohio in 1862, marching from uh, from Nashville to unite with Grant at, at Pittsburgh Landing, and they come to the Duck River, and they, they spend two weeks crossing the Duck River, building a permanent bridge, building a pontoon bridge, eventually wading across the river because it wasn't that deep. Uh, but two weeks, this river holds them up, and it's shallow enough to walk across. Mm-hmm. The James River is uh, 2,000 feet across uh, yeah. at some points. It, it's huge. Mm-hmm. And Grant yeah, is going to get... I'm just just fascinated by this engineering feat. Talk about how how they actually get across the river. Well, it was spectacular. Um, Grant's whole move, disengagement from Lee and and moving across the James is uh, one of the best maneuvers I think ever executed by an army. Um, Lee, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the plans were actually drawn up for the disengagement from from the front of Lee uh, by um, Andrew Atkinson Humphreys, who was Meade's chief of staff. Um, and the army was going to withdraw in four columns. Uh, they were going to move by four different routes. Uh, they had to do it at night. Bands had to play to cover up their withdrawal. Uh, they would cross the Chickahominy River and then push on down to a point on the James that uh, had been identified by uh, uh, actually some of uh, Grant's uh, aides who had gone down and scattered the area out. Um, pontoon bridges were, were uh, pontoons were brought in, uh, boats were brought in uh, from various areas, uh, and uh, the uh, Navy took part. It coordinated. It was there to blockade the river to prevent Confederate ironclads from coming down and disrupting the crossing. Um, and the bridge was was thrown up. Basically, once all the parts got in place, the actual pontoon bridge was thrown up. Uh, oh, in something like eight or nine hours. It was a, it was an amazing feat. Uh, it spanned that whole tidal region, and as you can imagine, here you have river flow, and you have uh, the tide rises and falls uh, several feet at this spot. Uh, they also had to leave a uh, the central area of this pontoon bridge uh, had to be able to swing open so that ships could go through and bring supplies up to Baldy Smith's. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, up to Butler's army. Uh, so uh, it all worked. It was an astounding, astounding engineer feat. Uh, it was a kind of bridge that uh, one of the union, near, union engineers said generally it would take several years for someone to study, figure out how to do it, and get it put up. But this was done in uh, you know less than a day's time. It, it is just a, a remarkable piece of engineering. Uh, so the Army gets across. Uh, Lee knows they've... They've gone somewhere, but is not able to pursue rapidly. Uh, as you pointed out, they have to cross the Chickahominy River first, which is no small deal in itself. Very swampy uh, area. you got the river, then the huge uh, swamplands on either side. Uh, they achieve that. They get most of the Army across. And so by June 15th, you're ready to advance on Richmond and uh, take it before uh, uh, before anybody knows what's happening. Uh We'll save uh, the some of the details, many of the details for, for readers to get this book and read about. Okay. But I want to just ask you uh, quickly about the, the skirmish at Baylor's Farm on the way into Richmond or into to Petersburg as into the Petersburg. Uh, Union troops are advancing. Into Petersburg. Okay. As, as There we go. Uh, as the uh, Union troops are advancing. Can you say something about, uh, 
about that? Sure. Yes, definitely would. The uh, the main movement on the morning of June 15 toward, Peters, toward Petersburg was uh, was done by uh, Baldy Smith, who was one of Butler's generals. Uh, Smith had arrived from Coal Harbor just the night before. Uh, he had uh, his 18th Corps, uh, at least parts of it, that he was commanding. And he was given additional troops that he had never commanded before. And, and uh, one of them was uh, General Hinks's uh, U.S. Colored Troops, the USCTs. Uh, the Union force manages to pull itself together and get across the James River, uh, I'm sorry, the Appomattox River, uh, during the morning uh, of June 15th. And one prong of it, uh, as it moves uh, toward Petersburg, which is about eight miles away, uh, comes upon the outer uh, protective uh, uh, areas for Petersburg, uh, Confederate um, cavalry under General uh, Deering uh, is there, along with, our, with some artillery. Uh, and uh, uh, General Hinks's uh, U.S. colored troops are the ones who ultimately make the attack. And it's the first really major offensive uh, by uh, colored troops in the Virginia um, theater. Uh, and uh, they take heavy losses, but they bravely uh, take the Confederate position, uh, seize uh, one of the pieces of artillery, uh, and that battle uh, is generally viewed as uh, you know, one of the first major victories of U.S. colored troops and the beginning of the change of attitude uh, toward, uh, toward black warriors in the American Civil War. So it's one of many really interesting stories uh, in this campaign. The, the well, the listeners to the show know that the war doesn't end in 1864. Uh, that Grant is not going to capture Petersburg that day, capture Lee's army the next week. Uh, to learn more about it, they will want to listeners will want to get this book and and read all about it. I wanted to ask you uh, quickly in our last minute or or two about. Uh, the battlefields today. Did you spend much time walking around there? Uh, and, and oh yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I wouldn't write about something unless I <laughs> spent a whole lot of time there. Now I've walked all of those battlefields and putting together the routes of movement to Petersburg and to the, uh, or actually the mount or the movement out from Cold Harbor and across the rivers. Um, I've spent days with the old maps trying to put that together. There are several local historians who are extremely helpful, uh, who've spent years trying to figure some of these issues out. Uh, and of course, Will Green is a, very, is a very good friend of mine. Will and I mm-hmm. uh, share a lot of material. And uh, he also has been very interested in that, uh, that movement and the events of those days. And the, uh, the historians at the uh, Petersburg Park, is National Park as well. So yeah, tremendous amount of time on the ground. You can't write about these things without seeing the ground itself. You really can't, and and it's remarkable how well some of it is preserved. Obviously, Petersburg urban sprawl covers uh, parts of the battlefield, but mm-hmm. uh, you know you can go out to City Point, and it's just uh, uh, you get this view across the rivers. It's like you were there. Um, there, there are there's a lot to see there. Uh, I, I find it uh, as the whole Civil War field has looked at this campaign more closely in the last few years. Because there are uh, so many books on Gettysburg and Antietam, uh, likewise, yeah. these battlefields are not as heavily visited, but they're they're very interesting uh, yeah. and, and worth looking at. So, uh, quick final question, uh, same one I asked you last time, and the answer was this book. The question this time is: uh, Do you have another project uh, in mind, or 
Well, I, I do have some projects in mind. I'll tell you, one of them is this. Uh, when I finished my book on Cold Harbor, most historians had viewed Cold Harbor as the end of the Overland Campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sense was that it wasn't the end of the Overland Campaign because obviously that campaign and maneuver continued uh, down through what I describe in my book on to Petersburg. Mm-hmm. And, and it stymied there. But now some people have explained to me that the action on June 15th, when the Union Army was stymied at uh, uh, at the Dimmick line in front of Petersburg really wasn't the end of the Overland campaign because the fact that the Union Army had been stymied wasn't figured out for another three or four days. That is, after the massive uh, uncoordinated attacks of the 16th, 17th, and 18th of June. So I might decide that the campaign is not quite over and do a volume on that. That's one possibility. Um, and uh, two other possibilities. Uh, one of them involves, uh, actually both of them involve soldiers whose diaries I've seen uh, one of them is a, a black soldier from New York, uh, fascinating, uh, with a lot of good papers, has never been published. Uh, and another one is a, a southern southern soldier who fought in these campaigns. So I may end up doing some more biographies. Well, they uh, both sound awesome. <laughs> I say they all okay, sound I'll interesting. I'll take a little breather, but then I'm going <laughs> to start one up, hopefully in the next couple of months. Well, that would be wonderful. Uh, I wish we had more time. We're out of time. We've got to go. Listeners, you absolutely, uh, if you've read any of the other books in the series, you already know that you want a copy of On to Petersburg, Grant and Lee, June 4 through 15, 1864, by Gordon C. Ray, our guest tonight. Gordon, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Jerry. I always appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.